Anyway, look, thank you very much indeed for the opportunity to come and to speak on the subject that has been set before you, Luther's theology of the cross. What has Martin Luther to say to the contemporary evangelical church? That effectively is the point that I will aim to make this morning. In order to begin, we need to know what the contemporary evangelical church is like. And to do that, I refer to David Wells. David Wells has, since 1975, sought to chart, analyse and describe all that has happened and is happening. With a surgeon's skill, he has cut through the glitz and the glamour to reveal what is really going on, or has gone on, for more than 50 years. Wales has been a modern prophet, ringing an alarm for the modern Christian. And yet what he says isn't new. In one sense, he has said nothing that Luther had not already said in 1518. Now, the year 1517 is, of course, better known to most people as the critical moment when that dramatic shift occurred from works to grace. Luther's 95 Theses heralded that dramatic change. However, It was the following year in 1518 at the Heidelberg Disputation where Luther fully articulated his views on justification by faith. The Heidelberg Disputation was at the invitation of Staupitz as head of the Augustinian order who asked Luther to explain his theology dealing especially with free will, justification and faith. So it was an opportunity for Luther to defend the 95 theses, and he did so in the form of 28 theses. What Luther would state was actually more controversial and more far reaching than the 95 theses. What is also less well known is that at least five future reformers were present for that disputation. Busser, Brentz, and Belichen. Here is Busser's record of that debate. I'll read it to you. He writes it in a letter, 1st of May, 1518. I will propose to you a certain theologian, not indeed one of our number, that is Heidelberg, but one who has been heard by us in the last few days. One who has got so far away from the bonds of the sophists and the trifling of Aristotle, one who is so devoted to the Bible and is so suspicious of antiquated theologians of our school that he appears to be diametrically opposed to our teachers. Jerome, Augustine and authors of that stamp are as familiar to him as Scotus. He is Martin Luther, that abuser of indulgences on which we have hitherto relied too much. Although our chief men refuted him with all their might, 
their wiles were not able to make him move an inch from his propositions. His sweetness in answering is remarkable. His patience in listening incomparable. In his explanations, you would recognize the acumen of Paul, not of Scotus. His answers, so brief, so wise, and drawn from the Holy Scriptures, easily made all his hearers his admirers. On the next day, I had a familiar and friendly conference with the man alone, and a supper rich with doctrine rather than with dainties. He lucidly explained whatever I might ask. He has brought it about that at Wittenberg, the ordinary textbooks have all been abolished, while the Greeks and Jerome, Augustine and Paul are publicly taught. Busser's estimation of Heidelberg, some rather fascinating descriptions of Luther as one who was mild and sweet in his answers. But let me put this Heidelberg disputation in context. From the outset, it is crucial to understand two phrases. Luther refers to a theologian of glory and a theologian of the cross. He uses them as opposite phrases. He is using glory in a purely negative sense. For Luther, a theology of glory leaves the sinner in control by giving them something to do. The theology of glory redefines the problem as one of self-esteem, building up the sinner's confidence to supply what grace lacks. The theology of glory makes promises of benefit when the sinner follows a set of steps, does certain works. They are presented with a formula which merely requires their acceptance and completion. For Luther, the theology of glory is a persistent pest in the church. It's the default position of fallen humanity. We're no longer sinners but victims opposed by numerous injustices. A theologian of the cross calls things as they are. In other words, as we would say in Ulster, they call a spade a spade. They're never going to be popular, never going to win favour. They're always conscious of the slippage of theology and grammar. In other words, they refuse the theology of glory. In 28 Theses, Luther shreds the theology and theologians of glory. He does it by attacking everything we hold dear. Essentially, as Luther argues, the cross is God's assault upon the sinner. He is attacking what nowadays we would call health, wealth and happiness. A come-to-Jesus theology and all your problems are solved. That type of preaching which puffs up the sinner as though they're doing God a favour. 
that God is standing helplessly by until the sinner gives a favourable response. God has done all, it's now over to you. So what then, in terms of content, are these 28 theses actually about? Well, the structure of the 28 theses is crucial to what Luther is teaching. In four steps, as it were, he sets out a theology of the cross. First of all, Theses 1 through 12 deals with the problem of good works. The starting point, Luther insists, is the law. To quote a modern preacher, John MacArthur, he rightly stated, We have no business preaching grace to people who do not understand the implications of God's law. It is meaningless to expound on grace to someone who does not know the divine demand for righteousness. Those who do not even sense their own guilt cannot possibly comprehend God's mercy. Like Luther, the law comes first. We have no business preaching grace until we first preach the law. Theses 1. The law of God, the most salutary doctrine of life, cannot advance man on their way to righteousness, but rather hinders them. His argument is this. The theologian of glory presents works done in obedience to the law as a way to win favour with God. The theologian of the cross, stating things as they are, makes it clear the law cannot save, and in fact makes things worse by condemning the sinner entirely for what they do and for what they fail to do. In other words, it acts as a vice on the one side what they're to do, on the other side what they fail to do, and of course the failure on either side gets tighter and reveals to them their inabilities. To think that the law and works and works of law can save is a theology of glory. Thesis 2 to 6 goes further. If the law makes things worse, good works are wholly unable to save or give any merit to the sinner. We are without merit. In fact, our good works turn out to be sins. The theologian of glory puts a false value on good works while downplaying the place of grace. Luther appeals to Matthew 23, where the scribes and Pharisees are called whitewashed sepulchres. By contrast, the works of God are unattractive. The basic fault of the theologian of glory is, says Luther, to judge by appearances. The theologian sees through the scandal of the cross to the power of God unto salvation. So what Luther is doing is exposing what we face still. The theologian of glory says our view of man is too pessimistic, negative, gloomy and depressing, that we need to drop it all if we're to get a hearing in the public square. 
Luther won't have any of that. Thesis 7 through 12 points us to the fear of God and the complete failure of good works to achieve anything of merit. As in Luther's day, so in ours. True and proper fear of God is missing and actually disliked. Theologians of glory want to make sinners feel good about themselves. Whereas the theology of the cross says what we lack is a fear of God. To give you a modern recommendation, Al Martin, The Forgotten Fear, an important little book on the whole subject of the fear of God. What is the fear of God? What are the marks and characteristics of it? And why the fear of God is missing. Luther is saying, the fear of God is acknowledging God to be God, all that he says he is. So what Luther aims to do is to close all the loopholes in contrast to the theologians of glory who look to bypass everything without emphasising the fundamental problem of sin. Unless that is grasped, argues Luther, there is no hope. Until we grasp man's fundamental problem as sin, there will not be that fear of God that is so essential. Secondly then, Theses 13 through 18, the impotence of free will. Theologians of glory always seek to give some place for the will. By contrast, the theologian of glory, seeing things as they are and stating things as they are, see the will as bound, that we are in bondage to sin and to Satan. Without regeneration, there is no alteration to our state. Because of the fall, Luther rightly says, (coughs) we are bound. And Luther points to John 8, verse 34. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And Luther goes on to quote Augustine, free will without grace has the power to do nothing but sin. Sin makes it impossible to be free. So the theologian of the cross looks at things through the cross, sees what is going on. The theologian of glory is merely calling good, bad, and bad things good by exalting free will. And in addition, Luther says, we increase our guilt by attempting to obtain grace by works. If you don't understand grace, that's another problem. Luther then attacks the view that all this is too gloomy and depressing. There have always been those who want something more uplifting, more positive. 
By contrast, Luther's arguing, only by a theology of the cross can we drive sinners to humility and utter despair in order to receive grace. Dale Ralph Davis has a comment on the portion read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. said, the Jews want a mighty Christ, not a mangled Christ. The Greeks want a clever Christ, not a crucified Christ. And the rest of us want therapy. In other words, there's the state of the church. Luther will tell you what you need is a theology of the cross that drives sinners to despair. The humble the sinner to see they are not only in despair but helpless and hopeless. And grace is the answer. Third, thesis 19 to 24, which is really the heart of his disputation, the great divide. This is the centerpiece of all 28 theses. However, unless you follow all of the links in the chain thus far, you miss the fundamental framework. And there are far too many people writing on the, the, this Heidelberg disputation. They ignore the first 18 theses and they concentrate on 19 to 24. I'm thinking if we just look at that, we can fully understand what Luther is saying. The reason Luther had the previous uh, 18 points was in order to build up to this. You can't understand what he's saying unless you follow the previous links. In other words, he's really saying if you analyze the problem wrongly, you will get the wrong answer. So if we ignore the previous 18, we will analyze the problem wrongly. As David Wells notes, if the problem is seen as being contemporary, relevant and reaching out, the solution will inevitably lead to a discussion about tactics and method, about seduction, not truth, success, not confrontation. What Luther has done so brilliantly is to say, if we get it wrong in relation to works, Thesis 1 to 12, it is because we have a false view of our ability, Thesis 13 to 18, which in turn is based upon a false understanding of God's verdict, Thesis 19 to 24. And what is at stake in this section? is both theology and the theologian. What kind of theology do we have? What kind of theologian do we want to be? There are two alternatives, argues Luther. A theology of glory, which essentially appeals to the world, speaks of worldly things, does so in worldly terms, and attracts worldly people, to paraphrase John and 1 John. Or a theologian of the cross, which humbles the sinner, 
These are two entirely different theologies and preachers. The theologian of glory wants a positive, uplifting message for hearers without actually calling them sinners, perishing sinners, under the wrath of God, and also without even mentioning the S word, which is sin. The theologian of glory is driven to give some credit to man, to good works, to merit and ability. The theologian of the cross states things as they are in order to humble, in order to point the sinner to the only source of hope, which is the cross. They state things in terms of fall, depravity and inability. So what Luther in this section is arguing, here are two ways of looking at things which generates two ways of describing it and two different approaches in relation to it with two different solutions. As Luther states in Thesis 21, calling things as they are is what the theologian of the cross does. You can begin to see why Reformed preachers who are faithful to their calling, are not really very popular. Whereas someone down the road who dismisses all of this and deals with how to handle anger and how to handle your wife and your husband and all the rest of it, it's always going to be much more popular because the Reformed theologian, the Lutheran, tells things as they really are. In modern terms, for the theologian of glory, we're no longer sinners, but victims. Not helpless, but needing advice and guidance. That makes the theology of the cross unattractive and the theologian of the cross offensive. Equally offensive to many, the theologian of the cross is asserting there is no alternative to this message. This is not one view among many, but the only way of hope, the only way of salvation. The theology of the cross insists upon its singularity and exclusivity. So there's a certain dogmatism in Reformed preaching, in this Lutheran Theology of the cross. And what is more, the theology of the cross becomes our own theology and experience. And here Luther refers to Galatians 2 verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. So the theology of the cross which we preach is our theology. It is our experience. The theologian of glory aims to make the message attractive, uplifting, to make sinners think they are in control of their lives and their future, that sinners need optimism, encouragement, flattery, entertainment and attractions, all of which are the rage of modern evangelicalism. To redefine the gospel in terms of climate change, identity 
and the environment. To be tree huggers, I suppose. To pretend that power evangelism will bring alteration and attractiveness to the world. For Luther, God's love isn't reactive, but creative. That is the radical departure from medieval theology. In other words, not only is man saved through faith alone and Christ alone, but it is the sovereign and loving grace of God that transforms the wretched sinner into a blessed saint upon whom God set his eternal affections. Astonishingly, I suggest, in contemporary evangelical terms, we are heading backwards to pre-Reformation theology and ecclesiology, a dumbed-down message bolstered by entertainment, supported by ever more expensive building programs, in which an entire series of activities for every age group and category the church can think of. A theology of glory has become the norm in contemporary evangelical circles. And common to all these theologies of glory is Arminianism and antinomianism. That's why Luther took so much time, though it wasn't called Arminianism, but Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism with the previous 18 theses tearing down, as it were, everything that sinners depend on. Nothing in Scripture, says one writer, in relation to Heidelberg, indicates the church should lure people to Christ by presenting Christianity as an attractive option. The gospel itself, says Luther, is disagreeable, it is unattractive, it is repulsive and alarming to the world. It exposes sin, condemns pride, convicts the unbelieving heart, shows human righteousness, even at its best, to be worthless, defiled of filthy rags. It affirms that the real problems of life are not because of anyone but ourselves. We are fallen sinners with deceitful hearts, evil motives, pervasive pride. We cannot blame anyone else for our failure and misery. This is not a popular view particularly in today's psychological climate, it comes as bad news to those who love their sin and many who hear it for the first time react with disdain against the messenger and the message. So the real test Luther is laying down for us is what kind of theologian do we wish to be? What kind of theology do we really have? Carl Truman says, God does not find that something is lovely and then moves out in love towards it. Something is made lovely by the fact that God first sets his love upon it. He does not look at sinful human beings and see among the mass of people some who are intrinsically more righteous or holy than others and thus find himself attracted to them. Rather, the lesson of the cross is that God chooses that which is unlovely and repulsive, unrighteous, with no redeeming quality, and lavishes his saving love and Christ upon it. 
So in this major section of the thesis, as Luther distinguishes between a theologian of glory and a theologian of the cross, he throws down a gauntlet, as it were, at least he did at Heidelberg. So what kind of theology have you? What kind of theology, theologian are you? And Luther is arguing he is a theologian of the cross. He has understood the reality of the cross, the significance of the cross, the implications of the cross. And so we must preach the law to show sinners where they are. We must explain why works cannot save. And then we explain the cross. I want to come to some conclusions in relation to this because it can all get really very heavy and I've tried to make it as simple as possible and digestible as possible. But I pose this question in light of Luther's challenge. Are we more infected with the theology of glory than we realise? Horatius Bonner, in his General Assembly address entitled Our Ministry, I'm sure Brother probably has an original copy, uh, made a most telling observation. Bonner stated, Each age has its own defeats to sustain. These defeats have not always been losses. More than once they have been gains. The lost battles of the church have frequently been better than triumphs. Our defeat at the disruption has proved more profitable than victory. And these 40 years of blessing have showed us what a lost battle can accomplish. It is sometimes safer to be conquered than conquer. What Bonner said is reinforced by Wells and no place for truth. He argues that the moments of deep transformation, such as those that occurred at the time of the Reformation, also seem to happen at times of great upheaval in society. I believe that we are now living in such times. And though I see many of the omens that could pretend a very troubled future and perhaps the disintegration of Western civilization, this is also a moment when, in God's mercy and providence, the church could be deeply transformed for good, provided that, unlike the frog, it knows how to jump out of the pot. In other words, our whole way of looking at things, what we deem to be success and failure, needs a radical overhaul. Perhaps we should assert that the way to success is by the path of defeats. As Luther would undoubtedly put it, being a theologian of the cross rather than a theologian of glory. In a fascinating book written by Doug Frank entitled Less Than Conquerors, The Evangelical Quest for Power in the Early 20th Century, he wrote, What did evangelicals of the late 19th and early 20th century want from Jesus? They wanted victory. Victory in the face of uncertainty. The rapid shift to premillennialism reflected their growing despair. In the stormy weather, their barns crumbled. 
The roaring twenties was not the sound of God's chariots, but an indication that evangelicals no longer posed a threat to the march of secularism. David Wells records on one occasion when having described the situation was asked by a student, what are the steps we need to take to put it right? Wells replied, that's part of the problem. We want an answer that provides us with 12 easy steps to fix the problem. There isn't an answer like that. The answer is, preach Christ. Nurture churches that look like churches to know God as God. I'll put it in Luther's Heidelberg way. We need theologians of the cross with a theology of the cross and look to God to bless the theology of the cross and the theologian of the cross. But let us not be tempted, as Luther is so forcefully reminding us, by that theologian and theology of glory to try to reshape the message, to try and puff up the hearer, to make our message more acceptable and palatable. The theologian of the cross describes things as they are. Thank you.